Uh, as we've been going through the book of Philippians, there's been a few themes that we've seen as we've, uh, as maybe even you're turning there, as you're seeing in your Sunday brochure, we're going to go through another piece of Philippians today, but uh, we see this course and we've talked pretty extensively about what does it mean to have joy, and we've found out that a big piece of the joy process is suffering, and that there's endurance, and there's a perseverance of those of us who, who believe as we follow Jesus. We see that there's a process of, of change and transformation that can lead to joy. One of the realizations that, that I've seen is uh, that that's a commodity that we talk about in the church, and Christians and, and a lot of times they'll um, crochet or uh, needle and stitch things that are, that are in people's houses or they'll quote verses with this word joy. But to me, it, it brings about confusion. I think a lot of people say, what is this joy? Uh, joy. Uh, I've, I've not really, I don't use the word a lot. It doesn't even seem like a 2010 term, but what does it mean to have joy? And so, we don't, we're not fully comprehending here between all of our human heads what that joy means. And when you look around and you go, if we're not comprehending it, then we're probably not living that joy. And so it's by God's grace and His mercy that we ask Him and we say, Lord, will You move us along to where in the process of following You, we would begin to understand what it means to have joy and to live with joy Earlier we said the, a huge difference between the joy that the Bible is talking about and that seems to be a commodity of God's kingdom. It's something that God Himself gives. There's a huge difference between receiving the joy that God has for you and making ourselves happy. There's a huge tension because we can make ourselves happy, make our favorite sandwich, watch our favorite show, watch our favorite football game, root for our favorite team, have the right snacks, have whatever you're having, be in the right chair, have the right people in the room. We can make ourselves happy, but this Philippians proposition of saying, but God can bring you joy has, is one that is worth thinking through. And if there's a process that includes perhaps suffering and pain, that God brings a realization of that value so when you receive that joy, you know it's from Him. Because it came not through any circumstance, nothing that man or, or what this world could provide, it came from God Himself. And it came irrespective of whether or not you even deserve it at times. A lot of times we go, well, you deserve to be happy. But God seems to be giving joy to people that don't even seem to deserve it. I want you to think about the idea here as we've gone a couple weeks into this Philippian series. Sometimes we truly believe that we don't deserve to have that kind of treatment from God, that we would have a joy in our lives. I think sometimes there's so many obstacles in our lives and we've been so beaten in, throughout life that we have a construct in our minds and our hearts that we can't even see ourselves having this joy. Have you ever been so bummed with yourself that you, 
you know that you don't deserve anything. And sometimes we live in that corner. It's called shame. This cross we were talking about and praying about says shame's over with through Jesus Christ. You can have joy. As I was as we were singing and having worship and as we've been thinking about joy and what it means to travel with God, I got this picture this week and uh, I think it describes a little bit of what it's like to be with God. It's a very humbling picture. It's very simple. I've been accused many times of being a simple man. So bear with my simplicity. The picture I got of us with God this week was when I hold my son's hand, his name's Solomon. I want you to think of the last time you held a little kid's hand. Solomon's three. And uh, Solomon's got these little fingers, and they're very Garmin-esque. I see my dad's you know, fingernails in there, and and we're all real pale white people. We're a bunch of Irish people. And he's got this real pale, almost ghost-like skin. And, uh, but I'm, as I'm holding, his fingers are going like this. And now you're thinking of E.T. But yeah, there's a little E.T. move in there. And, but he's holding and he's kind of feeling the inside of my hand. And as I hold his hand as we walk, it, I came to the realization that uh, he doesn't have the power to hold my hand. My hand's too big. It's too heavy for him. So I hold his hand, and it seems as though I'm cooperating, or he's cooperating with me. He's cooperating as best as he can, but the truth is half the time I'm not just holding his hand. I'm holding his whole arm. If I hold it too much, his socket comes out or something, right? Like, hey, come on, we'll go this way. But as Solomon holds my hand, so too we hold the hand of God And for me, it's a picture of faith. Um, I can't hold my own faith up. But God holds our hands. And He lets us participate and and be a part of all of these things we we talk about here in the Scriptures and that He addresses to us. This is the picture of the word that we'll talk a little bit about today and next week called humility. When you come to the realization that God is holding your hand and you're not really holding your faith up, even the faith that we walk in was given by Him, when we realize that there's nothing in our hand, that all of everything is in His hand, That's called humility. When we come to the realization that I hold nothing, especially when I come before a holy God, I have nothing. We have nothing to bring this God but that which He gives us. And so, in essence, we give what has already been given us back to Him in honor. Not only our hand, but our life. Our voice. Our families. Our marriage. The objects that we hold affectionately, we give to God. We don't keep for ourselves.
We keep our time sometimes. We keep our talent. We keep our treasures. We keep some of our thoughts away from God who's allowing the whole experience to happen from His grace. Humility is where Paul is going to lead these people that he loves from Philippi in this book of Philippians. Will you turn with me to chapter 2? Actually, after all these weeks, we made it to chapter 2. We are victorious people. Will you stand as we read God's Word? All of four verses today. Don't fake yourselves out. That doesn't sermon. You know better than that, people. Come on. Chapter 2 of the book of Philippians, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only into his own interest, into his own interest, but also to the interest of others. You may be seated. Paul's giving an appeal. You know, when we, we talk about you say, hey, maybe we're not, we're not in touch with what bring, how does this joy come to us? Sometimes that's confusing how this happens. But I see Paul as Paul giving um, a call. He's calling them to these things. He's saying, hey, and this should be easy for us because last week we talked a little bit about the gospel mode of what it means to live in the mode of the gospel. And over time, we've been talking about the manner in which we live. How do we live? What is the manner of our life in response to what God has done for us? And so Paul is reality-oriented, just in case you were wondering if everything was being framed by um, this joy that he keeps talking about, and he speaks to them uh, in regards to the, the word joy or rejoice is repeated many times through this. But sometimes we go, well, is that just some grandiose picture? No, I would say right now what we just read is very reality-driven. He's saying this. Humility will be a central theme in your experience of joy. And so you need to look at how you're living in community with one another. And what are those attributes? And we'll break some of those down today. And I'll also let you know, he's going to say, hey, how is humility, how is having a lower view of oneself and a higher view of others, how's that going for you? Or is that truly what's happening in your life because he's setting us up. He's saying, hey, where are you at in these things? And many times we go, well, maybe not so good. Now that you asked, maybe humility is not in my vocabulary this month. Or he's saying, how about this encouragement you find in love? Or, or how, about, how about this one accord type living? And he's setting us up because next week we're going to talk about what that means when it's been manifested in totality, what does full humility look like? What does 
What does love as a person look like? And he's setting this up. He's, he's talking to the church and he's saying, how are you doing in these things? And certainly we go, well, that's very important. And we'll look. And then next week we're going to see what it looks like in Jesus. There should be an anticipation. So actually, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Maybe this week will be a little bit of a bummer. Because we're going to go, well, okay, on, on the chart, we're not doing so well. That's Okay really not a bummer when we find out what Christ has done for us and how he's restoring and renewing us in these ways. So let's take a close look. I want you to take notes today. Not the ones that we necessarily wrote because we know I go nuts all over these outlines. But I want you to write what God speaks to you today. Okay? So let's look a little bit closely at verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ... Here's what's happening here. He's saying, is there encouragement in your relationship with Christ? He's saying, as you walk out this faith, as you are together, what is there encouragement in Christ? So he immediately, because he knows where all power and authority and beauty and, and the rest of every attribute you could think of that is pleasant and, and wonderful, He's saying, you got to go back to there. Go right there. Go to the encouragement in Christ. Go to your relationship. And I, I want to, I, you got to realize this, that this is all about relationship. God has set it up to where it's all about relationship. So it's not just like, oh, I want to hear some encouragement so God will send me on my way. I need these as that pastor says, kingdom commodities. I just kind of want to live this way. But what he is saying, is there any encouragement with you and Jesus? Remember? That's why we're here. That's, 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 that's what this is all about, is, is we're in relationship with Jesus. Sometimes we can break open the Scriptures and start to dissect them so much to a point where we forget that this is all about a relationship with Jesus. How's your relationship with Jesus Christ, the Savior, your shepherd, your real pastor? It doesn't hurt my feelings at all. Your real teacher. Your real love. Is there any encouragement in knowing that you're in a, a loving, meaningful relationship with Jesus? There's not anything I could say probably more brilliant today than God loves you and God is calling you into a, an encouraging relationship with himself. Do you find any comfort from that love? Some of us are in such a blasted state. We are so hardened in the heart sometimes that doesn't even touch I want you to know that there's nothing, there's no hard shell, there's no barrier, there's no principality, there's no height, no depth. There's nothing that could keep God's love from you. Is there any encouragement in Christ, Paul says to them? He says, do you, he's saying, you know, we, we mess up, but do you know that the type of love that God has for you is unconditional? This is a game changer. Because here's what happens. I want you to write these two words down. 
the encouragement in your relationship with God, is that out of love or the other word, so love over here, or duty? Do you respond and live in a manner to God out of duty because you think that you're doing the right thing and you must do certain particular things? Because the game changer is that God loves you so much that if you mess up in what you think is a duty or you missed one day of reading your Bible or you didn't pray correctly or even your theology is not so tight, do you know that God loves you unconditionally? And far more than those things that I said is if you're in sin, if you're ruining pieces of your life knowingly consuming sin do you know that God still loves you do you believe that do you know that do you find encouragement no I'm not asking you to be in some crazy weird relationship with God where you sin to your delight and you just go yeah but you still love me that's irresponsible relationship but do you know when you find yourself in your broken state, living in a manner that is not worthy of the calling, that God is still seeking and searching you and calling you and bidding you to Himself? Do you know that the, the Scriptures say that this shepherd is so good that when he speaks, his sheep know his voice? Do you know that he calls you from those perilous places of the edge of insanity? of depression and darkness and evil. Do you know that's His job? Do you find encouragement in that? I do because I'm a busted man. I'm a ridiculous fool. I sin in areas that I wish I would never sin again, and then it shows up. And what... God is wanting you, and what I believe Paul is saying is a deep encouragement to you is, do you know when you're in that busted place? Right behind it, if you can hear, if you can hear here, that the voice of your Savior is there. Not looking to jump all over you and condemn you, but to save you. That's what he's really good at. So it's imperative that we see encouragement in Christ comes from our relationship with Him. This isn't duty. This is life. Duty is when we seek our essence through external means. You're doing duty if you want people to see you show up at things that are seemingly Red Sea, or you're doing duty when you want people to see the outside of your life. You know what he's setting them up for here? A good reminder to all of us that the things that God sees, the, 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 the way that the Philippians should live is from the inside. Do you know that's why we care how you dress? We have hodgepodge seats here because we don't really care about what color the seats are here. We don't want you speaking particular vocabulary that sounds religious or what people will say is Christianese. We are not wanting you to do that because of external approval. Your encouragement shouldn't be in that the pastors say, well, you're doing it right and you're doing it wrong. 
or your friends or your community. This isn't about doing it right in duty. This is not an external thing. He's saying, I want you to get inside. And he actually uses words that say, right at your gut. In fact, the, the real translation is in your bowels. I was like, that doesn't transfer well to my American audience. In your bowels, in your guts, right where it goes. Right in that spot, the very core of your life. He says, is there an affection right from this spot to God and to each other? And he's saying, this isn't about externalizing your faith. You know, there's some type A perfectionism in us. The Gospel's saying, you've got to chill. It's time to chill. Chilio. Calming down. If you're trying to do it right, if your identity and your essence is coming because you're doing it right, it's going to be a little messier for you spiritual perfectionists. And some of you that are living in a total mess and it's mush land and you're not allowing the Scriptures to define your life and truth is not setting you free because you're not allowing it to define things. You're just swimming in this spiritual uh, hedonism. I call it spiritual pot smoking. Where it's like, everything's fine, bro. No, not everything's fine. The gospel is going to call you to definition. So, I want you to look at 2 Corinthians 5. Second Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. This is a reminder of the kind of love that God has for you, that it's not your duty, it's not what you can do, it is what He has done. Let's, go, let's actually back up to 13. I like 13 too. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. See, this is people who think they may be foolish or weak. I'm speaking to uh, Corinthians. Right? A city that's kind of similar to Portland. And he says this, If we are in our right mind, it is for you. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died, and he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That was kind of our prayer going into this. And he's saying this to them. He's saying uh, chapter 2 of the Philippians piece that we're in. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, remember your relationship with Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit. See, he's saying that's all inside stuff. He's not talking about, hey, you guys didn't set up this, all these external things, right? You didn't do these programs and, and you didn't entertain the people enough. He's, he's saying this is all coming from a participation with the Spirit. And any affection and sympathy. And what does he say about all of these things? He says, as, as their teacher, 
He's saying, let this complete my joy. He's saying, the way that you're living, when I'm with you and my life is before you, he's saying, as your pastor, as we talk about these, this comfort, this encouragement, this affection, this sympathy, this love that we have, he's saying, when I see you treat each other this way and you're the community of God, it completes my joy, which I just see a, as a big cup. So what's in that cup? Well, let's look at the scripture. It goes on to say that if you complete my joy, there's, uh, by being of the same mind, when, when they're having the same mind, there's a little bit more to his cup of joy as their pastor. And then he says, having the same love. So that's another thing that's filling up the cup. And then he says, being in full accord and of one mind. I'm going to talk about that a second, but I still want you to have this picture that it's about the inside and not the outside. That may not seem like a big deal. I, what I want to say is, over the years, over many years, humans make following Christ and being with each other about the outside things, about the way things look on the outside. And so the visual I got, because I'm a visual person, is we can come together because of our affinities or the way that we look or the, the socioeconomics of, of what we're comfortable with. And we can come together, and my, the thing I got was like jacks, like when you're a kid and you got the ball and jacks. I'm old, but anybody over 40 is with me right now. Um, so you bounce the ball and you pull up the jacks, and the jacks all look like, and then when you're done playing, you take the jacks or, or marbles. Maybe marbles are, uh, you, you all know what marbles are. But you put marbles in the bag, and all the marbles look alike. And all the jacks look alike. And sometimes I think churches are like that. It's like, hey, you're a jack, I'm a jack. All right, let's go together and let's go to the bouncing ball and we'll get in the bag together and it's called church. And then, um, you know, I'm a marble and I'm a cat's eye or I'm a big marble or here we are, we're all in the bag of church. And you're going, where is this going? This guy, he's talking about jacks and marbles. We're talking about these jacks and marbles. These jacks and marbles, they all look alike, so they all go in the same bag. That's out. When that bag breaks, the external things break, all the marbles get spread all over the floor. This happens in the Garmin home a lot. You know where I get all these visuals, right? Five boys. All the marbles are everywhere. Here's what Philippians is about, and here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying it's from the inside. It's like when you have a magnet and you get all that shrapnel, and all the shrapnel looks different, like people look different, and people are different, but when you bring a magnet, and you move it around, it's all from the inside. There's an inside power that brings them together, and, and in this verse, when he says it's a participation of the Spirit, it's the Spirit that draws us into this room, not because we look or are comfortable with the external things of the way people look. This will never be, as long as I have any say, and I think as long as Jesus has say, this will not be a, a clique, a club based off of cool culture, certain kind of music, certain worship, certain ways that the, that the pastor dresses or doesn't dress well or, or however we all are. It's going to be a participation in the Spirit. It's going to be a drawing to the cross of Christ 
where the blood was shed, where there's no more greater meaning to your entire lifetime or your existence than to know that God loves you. I want to live with a bunch of people that know God loves them. Because that's what he says here. He says, same love. Well, let's talk about that. Look in your Bibles. Look in that scripture there. It says same love. One of the things that helps complete Paul's joy is that they have same love. Same love. Hmm. What in the world does that mean? Love is this. I just try to think of it practically. Same love is when you are loved and you love. Same love. Like your best relationships are the ones where love is going back and forth in an equal fashion. See, here's what I came up, I came up with this, this thing that I've seen in my life. I've loved some people and they don't, they're, I call them spoiled love. I've loved them a whole bunch, but they've loved me little. That's not the same love. That's spoiled love. Yeah, well, I get a whole bunch of love. That's just what it means to travel with me. Give me lots of love. And maybe I'll give you a little. And you're like, mm, that's not a good relationship. I must go back to Jesus and find my encouragement in that love again. And you know what? Human love's not fair. It's tilted, tainted, selfish, sinful. It's not pure and, and filtered. But he's saying if you know Jesus and you have a participation in the Spirit, you'll have a love where it, it seems like we've got some fair and equitable gigs going on here. Where you look across the room and you know that somebody's not holding this thought back here when they look at you through their eyeballs. When there's one accord and there's one Spirit and there's one love, then we have an equality that says, oh yeah, we're all on mission together. But really, I'm thinking back here, you lousy, good-for-nothing, low-down, gravy-sucking pig. Hey, we're in one accord. We're faking it. Hey, you dress like me. <laughs> He's saying, no, none of the externals. Participation in the Spirit. Having the same love. I want you to think about that one. I'm going to harp on it a little bit. I think it's super important here. So I'm going to pause. I bet you're noticing I'm a little slower today. Normally I'm... Cracker Jack? I went snowboarding yesterday, and I am a sore old man. That's why my, my arms aren't waving as much, okay? But I do want to go back to same love. Will you love the way that you're loved? Will you love even more than the way that you're loved? We're talking about between each other. Can you love... and have an affection for others the way that this Scripture is saying? From your gut? From your inside? He says this, the greatest weapon that we have together in moving forward the Gospel is having one mind. Have you ever seen the power of twins? Or sometimes we think we're twinsies with our friends because they look like us. Hey, we dress alike. This is normally like very uh, junior high and high school. Okay? 
Uh, we look alike, so we're friends, and we say the same things, and then every once in a while, you, you say the same thing in the same conversation. It's like, Jinx, you owe me a Coke. Jinx, you are so like me. We are so of one accord. Where was I going with that? <laughs> power. There's power in the mission when we're all on one accord. When we're loving the same, and then when we're thinking the same. So he says right here, from your gut, you love each other. Any encouragement from that? Yeah, I feel comfort from that. And then he says, and then when you're moving out and you're living life intentionally in mission to reach the culture for Jesus in a very healthy, loving way, he says when you're of the same mind, it's like when you're playing cards and you got double aces. When you put down matching thought patterns, when you move biblically in the same way, it's a strike. It's not some scattered, hey, I got a three of hearts. Or over here is a seven of clubs. No, he says, when you got same mindset, it's like, think. How do you like me now? Think. What are you going to say about Jesus now? Think. What's up with that? He's saying, you have this one accord in love and in thought patterns and in mind. This is called the unity of love. And he says this in the second part of 2. So let's read from the second part of 2 to 4. We'll see that there's unity in the, in the spirit and purpose. So the end of 2 says, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. We just discussed that. Do nothing from rivalry. So now he's setting up the contrast, right? He says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Okay, once we get over our love spoiled and we're loving in the same mind, or having the same love and we've got the same mind, he's saying the unity of, of Spirit and purpose is what counts. And so what he's doing is he's, over and over the epistles do this kind of thing where it breaks down individuality. When we live as individuals or isolate ourselves, that is the enemy of community. And you say, no, duh. But the picture he's trying to say is, stop living in individuality. Be in one accord. You're traveling together over and over and over again. If you ever want to hear Royce... Pastor Royce, go on a rant. Have him just tell you why he loves that the epistles were written to communities of people. That's what's happening here. I got some smiles. People have had that rant. Royce, they, he gave them a half hour. Maybe an hour. Um, I got another image for you. What do you think of this one? How would we live together in the spirit of fellowship and we're living, and, and so the picture I got was Jesus is living water, and so Jesus is the fountain that never runs out. And can you think beyond Americana now? See, that's where I would say we are taught how to be individualistic consumers. And so this community idea, although it's a catchphrase here in Portland, it's still not fully understood. And what God's people need to see is that Jesus is that fountain that we all drink from. So I want you to think, if we lived in Africa right now, and there was a fountain in our village that everybody in the fountain went to this, everybody in the village rather, went to the same fountain every day. 
That's the only place you had to drink from. That's what he's saying. If there's any participation in the Spirit, the Spirit is that fountain. That's where we all drink from. That's why we all have the same mind, the same love. We all live in one accord. We're deployed out to culture in that. Could we see the Word of God and the Spirit of God as we choose to be committed to God and following Him and doing that together because we're not going to live in enemy of community in isolation as we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit perfectly doing that. We're all going to go to the same fountain over and over again and we're going to agree that that's where we live from. But we live in an era where we go, I've got my iPod Bad marketing thing. I've got my iPad, my iPod, my I, I, I. And everything's individualized. I've got my own water faucet at my house. I've got my own time with God. And what happens is we isolate even when we're doing things with God and we go, well, I've got mine. And people fail to see why we gather together even on a Sunday together. Well, I'm doing Christianity this way. Or I only like the, the missional home communities. No, this is the whole thing where we're coming to the fountain in different respects, but we do this together. So he says this in verse 3, right? Do nothing from rivalry and conceit. Paul's giving that encouragement in Christ earlier, and now he's giving an exhortation, right? He's saying you can become having uh, strife and you can be having uh, like uh, factious mindsets where you're dividing and you're self-seeking. And he says, this, this is what could start. So here's two things I want you to write down. I'm going to read you what I wrote this week. How do I know if I have rivalry in me? Now I want you to listen up because this is super important, right? This is practical application. This isn't, I need to go eat and go to the Super Bowl. No, this is, we're living life together. This is, these things that are coming from these scriptures are, have direct implications on the way that I'm living my life today with my church family, which God says is more important than my biological family. So we must listen to this. We must hear what the scriptures are saying. So beware if you have rivalry... And I don't hear that word a lot in, in culture, so I kind of wanted to break it down. Where do we see rivalry and conceit? I believe, after thinking this through, you have rivalry in you if you get upset when others interfere with what you believe are your purposes. When you think somebody is in the way of your attempts to succeed... You get angry when you see that. You isolate and you stew. You focus on people's faults. You have a rivalry problem if you're focusing on other people and their faults. You're competitive in that measure. You have strife and unease and you are not operating from peace if you're constantly worried about how others are operating. And I mean within your marriage too, married people. When you start to think that your spouse is in the way of you succeeding the way you are, and you, you just give up the idea of living as team. 
And you get mad and you stew about what others did so you cannot obtain to your spot. Do you know what the other popular word for that is? Entitlement. Well, everybody's making it so I can't hold the position that I want and the world's against me. And how could that world be against you or win when you are so loved and encouraged by Christ? Here's another way that you can identify if you have rivalry, if you have a hard time giving grace to others when they, give, when they do mistakes around you and you have a hard time with forgiveness. If you have a hard time saying, it's okay, we can absorb that. We're on the same team humanity-wise. See, remember, this all goes back around, back to same love. You may have a rivalry problem if you're allowing everybody to love you and they have to go through so many hoops to love you. And whenever they don't hit that right hoop right, you're upset. That means you have rivalry. And in your relationship to God, this is when rivalry gets real unhealthy is that you fear what God may do if you do something wrong. You have some fatalism. You're not understanding the love of God. Conceit. Oh, I guess we're not done with rivalry. I wrote one more thing. Rejects others in community. You have rivalry if you are not allowing people in the community to be with you in community. They're not meeting your requirement or your standard. If you're holding people away from living within your life because they don't meet your standards, that your standards apparently have become higher than Jesus's, then we have a rivalry problem. We have strife. Conceit. He says... Do nothing from rivalry and conceit. So these mindsets that come through conceit is, are you manipulative in circumstances and ways so that you're seen in the best angle? Do you have a hard time not being seen as exalted among others? Are you moving situations and telling stories where by the time you're done, you're kind of a superstar? Are you... Are, are you afraid to allow the story to actually be the story? Are you doing PR? And, and, a, and a, an interesting spot of conceit is that you kind of drag God around too, so you do PR for God. Like when people ask you the tough questions, how could God allow suffering? You don't probably want to start from the premise that God does allow suffering. And you're very far from ever saying, God uses suffering to bring joy. The conceit in you that says, I want to manipulate and move every corner and everything in the verbal room and in the mental thought patterns to make sure that I'm seen as, as real fine. 
Because your recognition ultimately in rival and conceit is from your empowerment, from the way that you want to be seen. It's not being seen that Christ loves you, that, that Christ is inside of you, and that you are fully approved of and loved by God. So what people think of you shouldn't be a problem. And God's saying, please me and understand how much you are loved. But to live out of rival and, and conceit, these thought patterns that get started. I've talked to people that live in rival and conceit, and they come up with uh, scenarios of other people in the church that don't exist. And I want you to beware of that. Paul does to his people because they will not experience joy. And they will miss what it means to live in unity and the, the spirit and the purpose. And so here it is. The basic cause of this love loss and this disunity is our selfishness. I want you to write that down. What the cause of this, the reason he's preaching to this, the reason that disunity and love is lost and we lose sight on the comfort and one accord is because we're selfish. Super popular message, I can tell. Yes. We're selfish. And it causes people problems. Do you know what the root of our selfishness is? Pride. The disunity and the love lost and the selfishness, you can trace that root down to living by our own power. We all have a superiority or an arrogance over others. We believe we're better than others. How do I know if I have pride? This is a rough one. How well do you take criticism? Are you extra sensitive to, to criticisms that come your way? If you read the Proverbs, it'll say, no. A wise man takes counsel. A wise person listens to what people believe of them. Doesn't mean it's all true, but you don't care about the things that aren't true because you're secured in your identity with Christ. So the things that aren't true, you just don't, you don't, they're not there. But if you have participation in the Spirit and a criticism comes your way, is that, does that become constructive to you? Here's the tragic piece, is if we live out of our pride, live in rival, rivalry and conceit, if we isolate ourselves, there's no joy outside of community. See, if we're going to go back to the fountain and the magnet that pulls us all together in this unity, the love that God has for us, we, we need to see that the closer we are to that, the closer we are to traveling with each other, the closer we are to traveling with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the joy is not had for those who are living outside or seemingly above others. Okay, so I've got a rivalry. I've got a conceit problem. What do I do now? 
these divisions and these factions and our oversensitivity of ourself and our self-importance of where we are at within the people, that can be solved. Our, our secret of that we're selfish, self-righteous, self-empowering, that is solved through going to Christ, through our confession of those ways. That is solved when we get right with Christ. That is solved when we go back to our relationship with Christ and then He heals us. He brings back our significance that's not from external things or the world. And then we come back into humility with each other. And what does He say in verse 4? Don't think beyond yourself, basically. Don't think that you're more important than others. Look not into your own interest, but also into the interest of others. And, and the world says, Christian humility is like being a religious doormat. It means, do I just let everybody walk all over me? That's a very risky spot. Should I really consider myself lower and start serving more people? Should I really, when it says, consider others more significant than myself, should I really stop focusing on my progress and my life and the outcomes that I want and my vision for myself? Should I really suspend those things that has me really going and I'm really excited and ambitious about how I'm going to achieve and how I'll be seen? Should I really stop thinking about myself so that somebody else may benefit it? Yes. Could you ever imagine somebody who's got it all together, who's living as a wealthy person, who's completely got the affections of the world? Could you imagine somebody laying their life down for someone else? Is that really an equation that would work? Where we would care about the progress of our neighbors, of our city, of our friends, of the people that we do community with? That we would care more about their progress than our own progress? What kind of world is that? The one that God is setting up in the new kingdom, not called Portland, but the kingdom of Christ. The one that He's called you to where you would say, in humility, I'm not a religious doormat. It actually takes a much stronger man to get over himself and to serve others than to, than to, to lay prey to protecting yourself and your identity and your vision and your mission for life. And God's saying, basically nicely here, let's get over ourselves. And let's get into how others will progress around us. How could we sacrifice to that mode? Okay, we're closing it up right here. Ultimately, he wants us to receive a fellowship of joy. And so I basically took these four verses and made them two steps. Step one, go inside to Christ. Seek your encouragement and your love and the Spirit of Christ. That's what our motives should be. Get back to God. Get back to your relationship with God. And step two is when you go outside of yourself, are you seeking the fellowship of joy? I want you to think about the argument you're in. I want you to think about the tension you're in with God, with His Word. 
with his people, with the authorities that he's put into the church, the tension that you have, can you go inside of yourself, seek your comfort and your encouragement and your identity in the fact that he loves you in such an obnoxiously wonderful way that you are safe and secure to move from there and having your motives be such that you would count others more significant than yourselves, lifting up and progressing others in that kind of movement, and then coming to the point where we would find ourselves saying, I want others to be in the fellowship of joy with me. And God says, sometimes in spite of you, because you're living in rival and conceit, and don't be surprised if joy happens around you, and you find yourself not participating in it, because while you think you're in with everyone, you secretly isolated. To punish people because you're in judgment, because they haven't met your standards. God says enough of this. So how do we start today's sermon? With a little boy's hand in his father's hand. With the realization that the faith that I have, I didn't conjure up. God is building your faith. And so the power of the Gospel that's in you was given to you by Him. The air that you breathe this morning, one of the best things I did was I went and took a walk to get my favorite drink on the planet, a do-to-do, over at Anna Bananas. Yes, they didn't pay me for this. You're going to go get a do-to-do someday, aren't you? Maybe not. Anyway, the do-to-do is a couple blocks away, and this morning as I just was walking, I was just realizing that God's given us everything. If you haven't walked this neighborhood, it gave you this neighborhood. Breathe in the air. Look at the northwest air and and all of that wet stuff out there and the trees and and this neighborhood and, and hearing the people and their strife and tension and conceit and rivalry. I see it all over the place. It's us. We're all equal in that. The difference is that some of us have Christ and He's helping us move through our rivalry and our conceit. But I need you to see that He's given you everything. And so though you feel so wonderful when you say, I want to hold your hand, the big, beautiful smile He has is, you can't even do this without me. You can't even hold my hand without me. And here's what it really comes down to is, This, when you come here this morning, when you say, I've had rival, I've had conceit, I've been isolated, I refuse to trust you, I refuse to trust your word and live by your word, I refuse to have authority in my life. He says, okay, let's just start at this realization. And this realization is this. What did I put in your hand? What you have to give me I put in your hand. He's given us the bread of life. He's given us His sons crushing at the cross. Even when we come to God, we have nothing that we can bring in our hands. Sometimes we go, oh, well, I'm going to bring a big fat tithe check or I'm going to bring my conceit and my rivalry and, and I'll, I'm going to fake you out, God. You're going to see me as a really great saint. And God says... What is in your hand is what I gave you. What is in your hand and what you will dip that in is the symbol of the blood of my son that died because of your selfishness and your rejection of others. 
I have given you my son's body and I have given you his blood so that you can be forgiven and that you can live in harmony. And so today when we come to partake of this bread and this wine, we come with the realization that God loves us so much that he called you. He chose you before you ever chose him. He has watched us live our lives thinking we have stuff in our hands that are notable or worthy and none of it is worthy except for the cross. And the only thing we can bring to him is this bread and this cup and say, this is what satisfied you. This atonement is what appeases your wrath. So how can we be anywhere but in humility with the realization we have nothing to bring? When you are staring your weakness, if somebody calls you and says, come to dinner at my house, but you can't afford to bring something. Or if somebody says, hey, come join me and let's go do this activity. And you're like, I don't have the money. There's a beautiful revelation in knowing God. And that's why I love the beginning of this scripture. To say, find your encouragement in the love of Christ. Because you have everything. He has given you everything through His Son. And that's what we're about to celebrate in this communion. Come and repent of your sins so that God can bring fruit into our life and into our community. But if we are not a repentant people, He will not add to this. He, we will not be in line for blessing we cannot do that as arrogant and conceited people. We must humble ourselves. If you're wondering year after year, why is my marriage not good? Because rival and conceit. Because of selfishness. Why are my kids not behaving the way I would like them to? Because of our rivalry and our conceit and our pride. And God says, you have nothing to give me. I've given you everything. And I'm pleased to do it. If this is the first time you've heard a story like this that compels you to the point where you want God in your life, this is the first time you could ever, ever think about having the fellowship of joy because of Jesus Christ. Come to this table today. Let nothing hold you back. It is God Himself calling you. It is not a preacher. It is not clever words. It's not too long of a sermon. It's not the, anything external, is it? If you're called by that magnet, which is the Holy Spirit, come to this table. Come and be complete. It's one thing for the teacher to say, make my joy complete. It is a very beautiful thing to watch the people live out the one accord, the one mind, and the same love. But it's another thing to watch somebody start that by coming to Jesus for the very first time. And dare I say, it's just as beautiful when you come to Him for the 123,000th time. Let's come to Him. Will you pray with me? Jesus, You call us. You bid us. Not because You need us. You're God. You are complete. You are not incomplete without us. We are incomplete without You. In our broken state, 
You have sent Your Son, Father, to restore and renew and regenerate from the inside, the Scriptures say. In Revelation, You say, making all things new. And we see that that is pronounced in Revelation, but we know that it is completed at the cross. We see victory over Satan, over the enemy, over sin. We come to You, Lord, realizing that we cannot live in victory outside of You. It's foolish to be in rivalry with Your cross, to act as though we could complete our life without You is silly. It's foolish. It brings us to our knees when we have a realization that life was given by You. We become repentant when we see that we waste everything that You've put in our hand because of sin. We lose the fellowship of joy because there's no fellowship. When sin exists, sin breaks off relationship. And so You've healed us of this terrible disease of sin. Now, do we continue to sin? We do, Lord. We do the things we do not want to do. So, Lord, we just ask that You would continue to build us, that we could continue to have our little fingers in Your hand, sensing what You've done by faith in us. We thank You for Your Son. We thank You, Lord, in in anticipation of next week of speaking about the humility that Jesus had that far surpasses our humility. Will You please press upon us to consider ourselves less significant. Let us be weary of ourselves. Not to the point of shame. You're not kicking anybody to the curb. You're asking us to stand and to be in it with You as we are loved. Help us to have eyes for one another and to want to see the progress of others over our own progress. There's no greater picture of that than Haiti, Lord. No greater picture than of the epidemic of AIDS in Africa and in this country. Lord, let us see our neighbors and their needs not as a point of judgment. Let us see the, the brokenness of our Christian brothers and sisters not as judgment, not as now we want to separate from them, but that we choose them like You've chosen us. And from our guts, dare I say our bowels, from the depth of our souls, Lord, that we would have ambitions for others. That we would desire to give mercy and sympathy. Thank You for this exhortation through the Apostle Paul to that church, but this, this is the church. We thank You for Your timeless truths, Lord. Humble us, Lord. Let us have that realization of how great You are and how insignificant we are, not in a bad way, but in a beautiful way. We don't care about self-esteem when we walk with You. We have victory through You. And we love You. And we thank You for getting to be Your family. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.